Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. The only. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Rick Wagner, getting it right here on Kansas EKGLN, uh, the Internet, and uh, on our podcasts. We appreciate everything that you guys do for us and putting up with this stream of consciousness radio that I've been pounding away at for years and still being there. Well, it's quite a week, huh? We uh, really showed those Houthis, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Joe really did. I don't know how much it costs to uh, do all that bombing and so forth in Yemen, but the last count I heard was that we killed five people and injured six. Now, I'm not celebrating people being killed, but if we're trying to have an impact, it doesn't sound like we had a lot of impact. And a lot of the launchers and so forth that were being used in the Red Sea are pretty mobile. Some of them are, you know, Shoulder-mounted weapons, some of them are fairly easy to transport from spot to spot. A lot of them are drones uh, that can be moved. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but uh, we were saying we were going to launch an attack uh, the night before or the day before, during that day. And I wasn't aware that it was considered to be a good military tactic to let people know that you're going to be bombing their installations so that they can move everything. I'm not a uh, military genius. I do read an awful lot of military history, and that's just not something that comes up a whole lot, unless you're trying to trick them, and apparently that wasn't the case. We're going to see how this all shakes out. Uh, Of course, we have massive demonstrations in Yemen, not surprising, uh, and uh, other places where Iran is uh, sponsoring all sorts of people to act up. I wanted to bring that to people's attention, too, because... This equipment that is being used by this ragtag group of terrorists is not something that they would have been building themselves. Most of these people, this includes Hezbollah and to, and to some extent Hamas, although they have been taking a lot of money and doing a few things themselves, but for the most part they buy them someplace else. Of course, where they're buying them or being given them is Iran. Now, what we're seeing is a, a use of Iranian technology and things that arrive from that uh, that are propping up, you know, all of these combatants, this groups that Hamas, Hezbollah, Houthi, and I'm sure there's a couple out there we haven't heard from yet, that Iran is happy to supply ordnance to if they make trouble. Of course, we enable them to build that by giving them money. Like we apparently gave people money for hostages, and now there's a $10 billion that they apparently got. I want to get into that. Some of you already know. And they're supplying weapons all over the place. They've been recovering some of the weaponry that is clearly from Iran in Ukraine and Iraq, and now, of course, the Houthis. But And I put a link on this on our webpage. They said... Despite the latest militia, which is the Houthis, to join Iran's Axis of Resistance Network, that's what the uh, article calls it. This is from Defense News, which I 
read that kind of stuff because it's better. Sometimes you just get something from the news and then really explain as much to you as you'd like to think. So what we're seeing is uh, sophisticated copies or variants of Iranian weapons. Now, they have all these unmanned air, aerial vehicles, uh, which you think of as drones. Some of them are big, some of them are not. They are much more suited to this kind of warfare than missiles. Uh, they can come in low. They can be controlled differently. Uh, you can maintain control over them, usually until impact or something. Whereas a missile is great, it's fast, but we're much better positioned to try and shoot those down. So they've got a lot of these drones. Now, I might remind you that under the Obama administration, and yes, I know I've mentioned this before, uh, we lost one of our sophisticated drones, and the Iranians recovered it, and we didn't get in to recover it. We don't know why. Obama's president. You can think of a million reasons. And a number of people said they're going to copy it, and they're going to be much more sophisticated in technology than that we've given it to them. And others said, oh, no, that can't happen. They're not smart enough. Of course they are. And now we're seeing these drones that look a lot like some of ours. Let's see, some of them are the Wahid-2, which is analogous to Iran's Shahid-136, capable of traveling more than 1,000 miles. It's an anti-ship ballistic missiles, and unnamed, uh, that's the drone. There's also anti-ship ballistic missiles, unmanned surface vessels, which are essentially drones on the water, uh, packed with explosives and dispatched for detonation. And what they're really trying to do is not just the damage, but they're also trying to raise a whole lot of uh, money, well, not raise, but cost a whole lot of money to get these things knocked out, right? So you spend, they spend $10,000 on a piece of ordinance, and you spend $70,000 to knock it out, usually a lot more. Uh, the article says, Tehran and its proxies have become increasingly cognizant of the economic costs imposed on their adversaries to intercept drones, rockets, and missiles. And that's something they intend to exploit. They're not stupid. And they use these ragtag people out there that give sophisticated weapons. It doesn't require a whole lot of sophistication to use or just a, a certain amount of training and turn them loose. And then we pay a high, high cost. Either they're effective and damage things or... The cost for us to intercept them, to keep them from damaging things, is very high. So you have that. And, of course, all the missile strikes, well, actually they were airstrikes, that we and apparently Great Britain did here, it just ignited all sorts of uh, problems all over the world. And I, I'm the first person to say that you can't let this go. But we should have acted a long time ago, and we should have acted... Uh, immediately and not tell them we're coming. What they should know is if they attack shipping and it's under American protection, they're going to get an immediate response. And we don't need to tell them what that response is, but it's going to be significant. And, of course, we don't do that. We wait a long time, and then we tell them we're coming, and they go away, and then we blow a few things up, and we think we've done something. And really all we've done is upset everybody and not gotten much out of it. As we look towards this, and we see even more demonstrations in the United States, and everything now is, is reflected back to Israel, like we're def we're defending Israel in some way here in the Red Sea. 
And so what's really gotten the anti-Semitism in this country has gotten ridiculous. I'll play you a little bit here, if I can get it up. Uh, San Francisco was talking about, I think, uh, passing an ordinance for a, uh, a ceasefire or something. And uh, a Jewish man in the city had come to speak about it. And he's lost some people in uh, right on a kibbutz and uh, has a couple people that are hostages. And the behavior of the crowd in San Francisco while he's trying to speak is just, it's just, well, it's terrible. In San Francisco, were murdered at Kibbutz Berry on October 7th. Two of those family members, these are my first cousins, were taken hostage, Noga and Sherry Weiss, and they were released as part of that second day of the releases of hostages. And I can tell you that this resolution does one thing. It fuels anti-Semitism and hatred, as exemplified in this room right now. Listen, the pig noises and everything else. This is pure anti-Semitism. And I have never, since I moved to San Francisco, seen comments, this kind of hatred against a minority group ever. A public demonstration of hate against a minority group. If you replace a Jew with any other minority, it would be unacceptable. But look at the behavior just in this room. And this is what it's like through the rest of the city. My kids and I do not feel safe in San Francisco. And this resolution... That is what's going on. And uh, there are uh, horns being blown, the behind which you can't hear very, very well to try and drown him out. They're making pig noises. They're holding signs up behind him. It's, well, it's reprehensible. That's where we're at. Every time... We take a position now, this is what happens. It has to be stopped. It has to be branded as what it is. It's a form of terrorism on a minority group in this country. Never be allowed for anybody else. Hi, everybody. Thanks for hanging on here. We're going to take things a little different direction here. Um, well, sort of different direction. Uh, we're going to bring a couple of researchers in, Lang Sias and Stephen Breyer, who work at the American Competitive Institute, and they did a study this year that's quite interesting that has to do with the competitive nature of the state we're in, Colorado. Now, a lot of you people are also in Utah, and we have people listening online and, of course, on the podcast, but it's going to be the same wherever you're at as far as the principles we're looking at. So thanks for joining us here on the program, guys. Thanks very much for having us. We appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity to be with you, Okay, so uh, let's just get a thumbnail from one of you or feels like going, you know, what you were trying to look at with this study. Well, I'll take that. Uh, we were really, uh, we find that a lot of politicians and economists uh, talk about the state or the performance of a state's economy just relative to itself. Um, oh, we did better than we did last year in these certain metrics. And what we wanted to find out was uh, how is Colorado doing relative to 49 other states in the District of Columbia in terms of economic performance? Yeah, well, I'm not aware the District of Columbia had any economic performance, but, you know, you must have found some. Uh, All right. So, you know, Colorado, I mean, we have traditionally been a decent place to do business in. Would you say it's getting better or it's getting worse to do business in Colorado? I'd say this is Lang. I'd say we're we're at an inflection point, you know, for for 
a number of decades. It's been a very highly attractive place to, to live and to do business. Um, and in many ways, it remains so. Um, but we're at an inflection point because cracks are beginning to appear, and our state, particular, particularly in the last several years, has become a very expensive place to live. We actually rank, rank last in housing, housing affordability and to do business, and we also face quality of life issues that undermine uh, our, our appeal, homelessness, and uh, and crime being being two of them. And we feel that that policy choices at the state and local level have contributed to some of those changes, right? Well, just to make people feel better, I'll remind them that we were last year number one in the nation in auto thefts. So there you go. We're number one. Uh, yes, now- we, uh, <laughs> yes, we auto theft, retail theft, and, uh, uh, and so forth. Yes, we've had some challenges. Okay. Now you had some cracks. You said you're getting some cracks in the system. Do they have names and do they work at the legislature? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, well, I'm not asking that directly. Uh, I'm being facetious, but I mean, it seems to me, and, and we were talking just briefly before, that a lot of this is government interference and mandate with mandates and essentially, we, we still think of red tape, but uh, going on you know, from the legislature, continuously trying to fix things by making them worse. Well, certainly we did a, we did a report earlier in the year, which feeds into this one, in fact, um, where we really took a cue from some surveys done of business leaders around the state who pointed to the cost of economic regulation, um, specifically in the labor and employment area and also in energy and the environment. And the cost of those regulations were things that really concerned them. And so when we studied that, we found, and it, we could talk at length about this, but we found uh, about uh, a dozen or so pieces of legislation that had been passed in the last four or five years that in the aggregate were costing the private sector about $2 billion a year um, as a result of the, that legislation. And so, yes, what happens at the legislature matters, policy matters, and it actually has an impact an economic impact on, uh, on uh, businesses and on the families that depend on them. So that $2 billion would be, uh, you know, what is in excess of what was uh, the cost to do that same group of, Whatever those uh, particular tasks are uh, before the new regulations, right? So that's, correct, that's correct. what's been so added. This is the cost. The... That's right. It's the cost of regulation, and with all of these things, Rick, as you know, there's a there's a debate over whether the the stated objective is good or is good or not. Um, but there's no regulation that that doesn't have some sort of an economic impact. And if you increase costs on businesses, regardless of how well intentioned they may be. Uh, that's going to be reflected in what they're able to play their, pay their employees, and it's going to be reflected in the cost that they're going to charge their customers. Well, we all know where the road paved with good intentions ended up, so we want to make yes, sure, sure that that's, uh, you know, and unintended consequences are always out there, but, you know, you have more unintended consequences when you get people that don't understand the system they're messing with. Is that something you folks feel like that is going on? Well, sir, yeah, I'm go, ahead. go ahead, Stephen. I was just going to say that I, I think Colorado and any state would benefit with the establishment of the equivalent of the Congressional Budget Office that has to score all legislation. Right. I mean, they, they try and they do a fiscal note now, but I've never seen them be much good, really. It's not the same well, thing the, as the CBO. The, You're right. That is correct, and it's a great point, Stephen, because the fiscal notes, of course, uh, analyze what the impact are, impacts are on the state, but they do not analyze what the impacts are 
uh, the dynamic impacts are on the private sector. Well, so all, you I, get go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so you get situations where where uh, bills are passed and you have a fiscal note that's analyzed what the impact is on the state, but you only really find out what the impact is on the private sector uh, after the bill has been passed and you start to see the start to see the actual impacts or an outside organization such as the Common Sense Institute does a study and uh, and models what those costs will be. I think that's a, a great point you guys bring up is that the fiscal note has to do with what it's going to they think it's going to cost the state. It doesn't really mean what it's going to cost everybody because of the implementation of it, which is completely different in and what the CBO supposedly does in uh, Congress. Yes. And so I think that's, that that was important to bring up. And of course it's the fiscal notes are often based upon ideas and data that are debatable, you know, about what they think is going to happen. That, of course, that's economics well, in a nutshell, I suppose. <laughs> well, it, it sure is. And, and if there are a couple of areas of this report that if you don't mind, Rick, we just sort of emphasize because no, there the, are ones that had particular areas of concern for us. Yeah. One is in, is in education in, uh, uh, K through 12 education where we gave in all these different categories, we give a performance score and, and Colorado actually ranked 20th having nationally having dropped from ninth in 2014. Um, but when you look a little bit under the hood, uh, you see some things that are concerning here. We see, uh, that we rank 46th in graduation rate. Um, and that's been a persistent problem for, for Colorado. And at a time when our education spending is, in fact, at an all-time high, we've seen some significant increases over the last several years. Colorado ranks 49th in the nation in the percentage of education dollars that are actually going to the classroom, and that's a drop of 12 spots in that period. And, of course, that leads us to the, the question that we so often have about about government spending is how do we assess where the dollars are actually going and how do we assure that the dollars are spent in ways that achieve the objectives we actually want? So one of the challenges, I think, for the legislature and for local school boards is going to be to try very, very hard to make sure that those education dollars are going to teachers and to the classroom and to actually producing measurable uh, improvements in student outcomes. Well, I like to see an optimist like that, but I think that, you know, uh, I would bring up that these are very powerful uh, very powerful sorts of uh, lobbying groups uh, that have an interest in seeing the money just to keep coming and not to have it tied to either merit or results. So, you know, we see that, that there's, there's a fight. I mean, there, that's a knife fight with these uh, education associations every time you want to try and do some of the things you guys are talking about. Well, and there's been a dramatic increase, in, and Common Sense Institute has studied this in other reports, but a, a pretty dramatic increase in the uh, in spending on administrators and administrative exp- expenses. Um, we looked over about a, a uh, 11 or 12 year period and saw that in a period when um, uh, per, per pupil spending had gone up 47 percent, the teacher salaries had gone up 27 percent. Um, with a significant increase in administrative overhead. And we keep so hearing, we, we keep hearing all the time about how Colorado's dead last in this or that. And reality is that there's not been a study out there that shows that they're past a certain point that there's any correlation between dollars spent per student and educational achievement. 
And I, you know, everybody knows that, but it doesn't make any difference. Well, and I'll, I'll give you one more uh, statistic on, on education, which, which is, uh, is interesting. One of the things that kept Colorado's rating relatively high nationally, um, in our study was, was the, how our students are doing on some of their tests. But when you actually look at, at our performance, only about 40% of our fourth graders are reading and doing math at grade level. So the fact that that actually was a relatively high score nationally um, is a pretty sobering thought. Uh, let that sink in for a minute. It's a pretty sobering thought when we think about we're, how we're preparing these kids for the future. Well, it's a race to the bottom, isn't it? Uh, you know, that you want to, you know, yeah, well, we're dumb, but you're dumber than us. Well, great. That's wonderful for you. Uh, we got about well, 20, 30 seconds here. So what would you think the most important thing to pop out of this? I think the most important thing to pop out of this is really the recognition that policy matters and who is conducting policy for us and how they're, how they're going about it is very, very important. And, uh, it's another reason to hold your representatives accountable and ask them to account for how they're spending your money. Right. Well, to do that, they would have to let us know what they're doing. And I've noticed that it's very difficult to get that information. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. We appreciate that. Give some people to think, uh, think on a few things out there. And uh, stand by, everybody. All right, everybody, we're back. Yeah, we sort of feel like we're at the twilight zone here when we start talking about uh, government because uh, and competitiveness, like we talked about in the last segment, and how it gets messed with and, and, and damaged, and sometimes with good intentions, sometimes with other than good intentions, because we're dealing with people that don't know what they're doing for the most part, or... They don't care if they know what they're doing because they're just trying to service a single interest group who's a big supporter of theirs or, or whatnot. And this isn't exactly a new idea. I mean, it just didn't, you know, come to people's mind like, oh, hey, politics should work this way. No, I mean, it's been going on for, you know, three or four thousand years. And, but you, to identify it is what's important because then you get an idea of what's really going on. And because we don't get enough news out of our own legislature and barely get, you know, news out of Congress that makes sense to us, it's hard to know what's going on and how it affects us. And so that's why it was important to have guys on like, uh, Stephen Breyer and Lang Sias to, uh, you know, who've done a study in this state. And it's the same kind of thing in whatever state you're listening in is that pretty much every year, unless you're maybe in Texas and Florida, and there's probably another one out there that I'm not thinking about, the ability to conduct business like you were the year before or a couple of years before is compromised by something the government is doing. And what's certainly ironic is that the things that the government is doing that raises costs on certain things are supposedly to make them more affordable. Housing is, of course, the greatest example of that. I I can't listen to the affordable housing arguments they drive me crazy with their solutions. Their solutions are, are usually things that anybody ought to be able to see is actually going to make things more expensive. Requiring a certain amount of, uh, let's say, development to be uh, multiple use or, uh, let's say, multiple family, multifamily, you know, apartments, things like that. Well, that's going to add a lot of cost to something that may or may not be appropriate to where it's at, but you're going to require it anyway, which in the end 
is probably going to be more expensive to build. It's probably, it's very likely to harm the property values of the surrounding single family residences if that's, if you still allow that, which they would seem to be in the mood to try and stop that. It's very weird, these people's ideas about home ownership and, you know, people's ability to afford it. Uh, they no longer try and come up with ways for people to buy houses. They want to come up with ways to warehouse people in you know, the caves of steel, as I like to call it. And that's their solution to everything. And, of course, it has a cost, and they don't understand these costs. Also, we have this constant climate change nonsense that has raised the cost of everything that goes into housing, I mean, pretty much everything, to meet standards that either aren't appropriate for the area or don't make that much of a difference, if any, and certainly don't make as much of a difference as their cost. We see this a lot of times with solar, where you pay a certain amount of money, usually a larger amount of money, and I've been seeing a lot of really strange things going on with solar sales out there. And you don't even get to think about cost versus the return. I mean, how long is it going to take to pay these things off, if ever? What's the serviceable life of them? You know, how much is it going to cost repair roof that you have these things stuck on if, uh, in fact, it starts leaking or things like All those things are all left out of the equation. So the more you try and control the market from the legislatures or executive orders or things like that, the more skewed it becomes. And the more skewed it becomes, the more expensive many things become, the less available things become. For instance, let's say you do want people to build more apartments. Fine. But if you want that, then making it harder to get people out of apartments when they don't pay their rent is not something that encourages people to build and manage apartments. The fact that some of the people in our legislature, and many legislatures, can't see the relationship between those two things is more than troubling. If you demonize landlords and landowners and then expect them to meet the needs that you imagine need to be met, why would they? Essentially, you're asking them to buy trouble. And people don't like to buy trouble. So it's it's very difficult to watch the goings-on of legislative bodies, and I include city councils and commissioners and whatnot in that, in most instances without having this bizarre sense of competing uh, ideas. Like I say, you know, howling about affordable housing and then making housing more expensive through regulation. Climate change, for instance, adds quite a bit to that, as we said. And here's a story I had up. Um, this is on our webpage, uh, the rickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com. And I thought this was an interesting story. I came up with a pretty good graphic for it, too, if I do say so myself. Uh, the Biden administration got slapped down by an appellate court for regulations that they wanted to impose on dishwashers, right? And the dishwashers, and I see that there's some problems with this link. I don't know about that. I mean, there's the, the thing to know is really that 
they wanted to make dishwashers, quote, more efficient, which is usually means try to make them perform worse. It's like your toilets. Some of you may be old enough to remember the days when the federal government, or your state government for that matter, didn't have a say about how much water you used when you flushed the toilet. Hard to imagine that people lived that free, right? To have that kind of liberty. Man, must have been abusing it left and right. A lot of things are like this now. Dishwashers were the same way. Uh, they wanted to impose some regulations where the dishwashers would have to use less water. And I think we all know what happens when you try and wash dishes with less water. Now, there may be a way of doing it, but it requires a lot of technology that I don't think it has out there yet. What you get is just not a very good job. This sums up a lot of the environmental uh, solutions that they come up with. Is as someone told me once, and it stuck with me. They said, "When I hear uh, environmental friendly, I hear uh, costs more and doesn't work very well." And many times, that's just exactly right. But the appellate court said they did not have the authority uh, to the EPA and people like that to just willy nilly do these things. And we've been getting a couple of good decisions uh, of out of the courts here and there, trying to curtail the ability of administrative bodies by that from the executive branch, EPA and so forth, a lot of the EPA stuff, that has been trying to expand their power past what they are delineated in the legislation that created them. That the, that the enabling statutes, remember, you create an agency, you give it a mission, you lay out some things, and then they do an enabling clause, which says that the agency can generate rules and regulations consistent with this purpose and that yada, yada. Well, there is a limit to that. It doesn't seem like it anymore, but there is one. And occasionally a court will say, what you're trying to do is far beyond your mandate. Congress did not anticipate you reaching this far. And that stops them, and they hate that because they want to use an administrative body to do things that they can't even get the legislative bodies to pass. Think about that. Too crazy for the legislatures to pass. Man, that's not something you want to see very much of. So they try and stop that, but the growth of the interpretation of some of these enabling statutes with some of these administrative agencies uh, has been going on for, I don't know, probably since the 70s. If you went back to the 60s, let's say, way back, get in the Wayback Machine with uh, Sherman, and uh, you go back in the Wayback Machine of the 60s, and the idea that that executive functionaries, administrators, and people from the executive branch could... Uh, Go ahead and just get involved in your life in this way is something that no one would take seriously. They, th- they think you're off your nut. Some of the things that the administrative state tries to do seem unconstitutional and not in a tricky way, but th- that they suppress your ability to do certain things. And there are certain parts of your life that are very important to your liberty. 
And it's interesting that we can find so many rights that aren't written in the Constitution to do things that we're very, well, we're not so crazy about, but things that should be clear, which is that we should always try and strive. And the Constitution is, I think, very much of a document that is in this direction. We should always strive to do what is possible with the, with affecting liberty the least. Rather, what we need, feel like we need to do, and it should affect liberty the least. So there's two steps in there. I mean, do we need to do it, and how do we do it so that the personal liberty is affected the least? Neither one of those things seem to be given a whole lot of attention now. And if the courts don't step in on some of them and say, look, this is an overreach because it's beyond what the legislature allowed you to do, and or it's beyond what the government is supposed to be able to do, period, under our constitutional framework, then we're all just at the mercy of what will eventually become, if, if it doesn't get checked, uh, just really two branches of government. We'll have a huge administrative state and then the courts. And the courts seem to be captured in many instances by people who love the administrative state. And the legislatures, it will become superfluous. I mean, it's interesting to listen to the left because they can't decide if the government should be run by administrative orders, executive orders, and regulation, or if it should be run by a legislative body that they can impanel that's tied to, like, a popular vote so that the big blue states control everything that happens. I think, in the end, they would prefer the second. Because once in a while, you might get a president who's supposedly in charge of the executive branch, who doesn't want to do those things and may dismantle some of it. I think Trump tried, and I think he'll be more successful if he's in the office again, because I think he now understands the problem and how deep the problem runs and how undermining the people that are part of that deep state, as we like to say now, uh, what they're capable of. Now, when we look at what the legislative bodies have done. We understand that it's imperative that you have people in a legislative capacity that have some kind of real-world experience. The amount of folks that we have in legislative community now, particularly the federal, who have no real business experience, have never run anything, never managed anything of any any size. Not that that's actually all that compelling. Sometimes if you manage somebody else's business, you never get a sense of the financial strain because it, you're not feeling it as much, right? I mean, if you own a business and you spend money and then you take money in and your profit is just how much you keep at the end of the day, you're a lot more careful about the steps you take. If you're just working there and someone else is paying you, you're careful so you don't make the guy above you mad, but you know may, may not be spending all day worrying about it. So we have these people that have no experience in any of that, and some of them have you know their heart in the right place occasionally, but they don't understand the systems they're influencing. They never worked in them, and then you got people uh, like uh, Joe Biden, who've never had a job that we can really put our finger on, despite what he talks about teaching at University of Penn. That was a great one. He never taught a class there. Uh, he just got a stipend from there, uh, which is interesting all by itself. 
and and in fact is really pretty hostile to the business community. And in the past, I think he's been not very friendly with the military, which is why it's interesting to see what's going on now in the military. And as if the military isn't in enough trouble, then to have someone who, you know, is not a big fan as a commander in chief, but uh, that certainly is going to go in how they're utilized. So keep your eye on this stuff. But just because it's so interesting to follow up on, uh, where we're at. I mean, there's another story on here that the, the Biden administration kicks off 2024 by unleashing $1 billion worth of new regulations. And, you know, the poll vote here is beyond the monetary costs. Last week's regulatory actions are expected to add a combined 2.1 million hours of paperwork burden to the economy as well. That's some time out of people's lives. And that's something you don't talk about as much. But even if it isn't money, if it's time, you only have so much of that. You can get more money sometimes. But you can't get more time. So robbing you of time unnecessarily is a very high-handed thing. Your time is really much more precious than we, I think, give it in value. Because we don't think about it very much. And we only have so much of it. And by the way, we don't really know how much we have. Some people end up having a lot more time than they thought, and others are here today and gone tomorrow. And they couldn't have thought that they uh, had so little time left. So think about that. In addition to the money, and of course, if I'm spending time doing paperwork, I probably shouldn't, then that, in fact, is time I'm not generating income. But beyond that, it's time I'm not experiencing life. I mean, we're not just put here to work and fill out paperwork for the government. I know. If you ask people in Washington, that's they won't understand that at all. They'll just blink at you and uh, wonder what you're talking about. But it is an important concept. It is a heavy burden to take your time to do things that are unnecessary or that you have no choice about. It has to be done very carefully. Like we said before, every regulation even one that everybody agrees is a good idea, or most people agree is a good idea, still limits your liberty. No matter what. I mean, it, it defines down a little bit of your freedom. So that's why each thing that's done has to be carefully considered. I don't think we're seeing careful consideration really much of anywhere in uh, what's being done. And if you're going to react to the actions of representatives, I think it's important to keep in mind that one thing is stop wasting my time. Because in addition to costing me money, you're wasting my time, causing me to do things that rob me of the time I would have to do other things. So speaking of defining deviancy down, I also put uh, a link to an article discussing Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, wrote a great when was it? I think, uh, I think 1977 or something that Moynihan, who actually we, many of us remember as being a pretty liberal senator from, 
New York for a long time. But actually, before his entry into uh, New York politics in an elected level, was somewhat more conservative. And anyone he was the, uh, I think it was under Carter that he was the uh, a representative for the UN. He did a really interesting job, good job there. But he wrote this great essay where, uh, and many people on the political right, as they say, like to say things the, uh, about these observations that he wrote. Um, the essay is called Defining Deviancy Down. And we hear that. And essentially what it is is the idea that if we c- continue to allow behavior that we guard to be deviant from productive behavior, we let it go on long enough, it becomes normalized. And then the next step happens. You know, the deviant behavior, now new deviant behavior arrives. And pretty soon, if you keep allowing that, then you no longer have a situation where society is being controlled by norms. And then then it collapses. And I think we all know how that happens. And... How many times have we seen that? And isn't this happening right now? Isn't don't we have a, a we see behaviors, particularly in some of our protesters and the things they're protesting, that are very unnerving, and they go on, and we just sort of accept them if they go on long enough. Think what happened in 2020 with the riots. There's so many of them for so long. I mean, even when you turn on the news and there's burning buildings and this and that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what's happening. You should never get too inured to deviant behavior like that. Because accepting it will not stop it. You accept that, then the next step comes in. Their line drawing, I guess, is something we have to do. And most people don't want to spend time doing that. They have their own lives to live, right? And so they want to spend their time you know, doing the things that make them happy. But if you don't address what's going on in society and require your elected representatives are supposed to represent you, remember that whole thing, uh, to do something about these behaviors and about these outcomes, like turning people out of the schools that you're paying for who can't do anything, that's a deviant behavior. I mean, half the American students, uh, and I'm reading up from this essay, up to 83% and 93% of students in Chicago and Baltimore perform below grade level. Now, is that something that people are willing to accept? Apparently so. It's been going on for a while now. And we just assume that people are coming out and they're not real smart anymore about what they're, what they need to know. And we just kind of sigh and we talk about it, but we accept it. So what's next? We seem to be trying to accept that, and we shouldn't, because that's that deviancy. That's the defining deviancy down problem. So a lot of it just requires our attention and a thorough understanding of what we need to expect out of people who are representing us and who are supposed to live within the confines of our of our controlling documents, mainly the Constitution. See you guys next week.